of holies, that there's no veil separating us anymore, Lord, as long as your blood covers us. Thank you for that, Father. Amen. Exodus 25, 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering from, for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. And fine linen. Goat's hair, ramskins dyed red, hides of sea cows. Acacia wood, olive oil for the light. Spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. And onyx stone and other gems to be mounted on the ephod of the breast piece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make his tabernacle and all of the furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Thank you, brother. I want to invite you to uh, turn to that passage in Exodus chapter 25, and we're going to look at just a, a couple of other passages as well as we, as we talk a little bit about the, the tabernacle, God's, God's dwelling place. Most of us uh, woke up, at least uh, somewhere this morning, most of us woke up in a place that we would we'd call our home. Our homes may look like different, different things. They may, may, may be a home that we own. It may be large, may be small, might be an apartment that we rent. We may be staying with somebody else. But for the most part, we all have, have some place, most of us anyways, have a place where we can call home, a place to lay our heads. And the primary, play, or primary reason for that is a, is, a, is a shelter. It's a dwelling place. It's, it's a place where we can live and be protected from the elements and, and be with our family. Well, when we come to the tabernacle, God's dwelling place, there's a different purpose for it. God doesn't need a home like we need homes. In fact, Peter in his sermon in Acts chapter 7, verses 48 and 50 says this, But the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my home and the earth my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what will be my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? You see, at the end of the day, the tabernacle was not for God. It was for us. It was a place where God's people could meet him. And in these verses here, we're going to get a, a glimpse or an overview of, of what the tabernacle was, its, its purpose, what it entailed. We don't have time to read all of the description. Uh, we'd be here quite, you know, most of the day if we, if we dove into the, all the details of, of the elaborate artwork and, and decor that went into creating the temple. And if you've read Exodus, you know that this is, this is a very detailed section. In fact, um, the, the temple or the tabernacle is talked about twice. In chapters 25 through 31, God describes the instructions for building the tabernacle. There's a brief interlude, 
Um, and then chapters 35 through 40 describe its actual building. So there's a significant amount of press time given to the description and the actual building of the tabernacle, which indicates that it's, it's a pretty important thing in the economy of God and in the scriptures. And as we, as we go through these, um, these uh, descriptions and sort of the purpose behind it, we're going we're gonna to realize two main ideas here. The first thing that we're going to see is that uh, we sh- we're studying Exodus to learn what the tabernacle meant in its original context. What was its purpose? Why did God give the tabernacle to the people? But the second thing that we're going to see is what the New Testament teaches about the tabernacle, especially as it relates to the person and work of Christ. The tabernacle is bigger than what we simply read here in the book of Exodus. The New Testament expands on it, and we're just going to just briefly look at what that means for us today. So if you're taking notes, the first thing that we want to see is the purpose of the tabernacle. And it was in verse 8 of that uh, introduction that, that Steve read for us. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. They are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. Exodus 29, 46 repeats this idea. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. In the details of the tabernacle, it could be easy to lose the idea of just how beautiful this is. God wanted to dwell among his people. What a precious thing. God didn't just give them the law and all of that mystery and power and might and glory on Mount Sinai and said, see you later. God didn't just stay up there on the mountain while the Israelites were camped down in the desert. God says, I want to be among you. I want to dwell among you as your God. The tabernacle, as one, one theologian said, was, is supposed to be a perpetual extension of the bond that was forged at Sinai. What happened at Sinai was more than just a bunch of rules being dumped on the Israelites. It was God making a bond, a covenant with them. And he says, I'm your God and you're my people. And he doesn't just say, go, figure it out. He says, I'm here with you. I want to be in your midst. The building of the tabernacle was more than simply a matter of building a worship site in the desert. It was a little piece of heaven on earth. The Hebrew word for sanctuary is rooted in, in, in the verb that means holy, to be holy. The noun means a place where holiness is. And it points us to the, to the idea that the, the tabernacle was a place where the Lord was in his holiness. In the full reality of the glory of his people, among his people, his holiness dwelt among them. And that brings us to the meaning of the tabernacle. The tabernacle served Two primary purposes, we've already alluded to it. It was to regulate their worship to God, and it was a point to a greater message, to something else going on. It was, it was a bit of a visual aid. All of, us, all of us appreciate visual aids when it comes to understanding difficult concepts. You know, sometimes uh, when, when you hear your teacher, uh, especially take something as abstract as math, you hear your teacher at school describe math. It, it, 
it's, it's very difficult to wrap your mind around such an abstract concept. But when they begin to, to sketch the problem on the board, all of a sudden it can begin to materialize in your mind. The tabernacle was, was a visual aid to remind the people of who God is. It was to comfort them in their, with His grace. It was to assure them of the hope that He extends to sinners. It was more than just a place to regulate their worship with God. It was that, but it pointed to a greater message. The reason I believe that God was so attentive to detail in these passages was that this building was designed to teach something about His character and about what it means to have a relationship with Him. I want to just briefly touch on the different aspects of the tabernacle. And speaking of visual aids, if you got a bulletin, you noticed a handout in there. I thought about putting it on the screen, but some of the text ended up being too small and, and we'd be straining to read the details. So use that as a, as a reference as we walk through here. Uh, it just, it, when, when I see different artist renderings of the description, they take from the description of Exodus and, 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 and sketch out what it may have looked like. That sure helps me see where things are in relation to one another and, and sort of the purpose behind different aspects of the temple. In the Holy of Holies, the very centermost of, of the tabernacle, we find the Ark of the Covenant. We're all familiar with the Ark of the Covenant. We've seen Indiana Jones. We, we know that it's, it's a Bible thing, and there's all these theories and the mystery behind the Ark of the Covenant. The, the, the Ark represented the, the center of the tabernacle. It, it represented the place where God and His glory dwelled. It represented God's holiness, but it also represented the core of the message here, that, that God is present even with those who are sinful. The Ark of the Covenant contained holy objects. We read later on that it had the Ten Commandments in it, uh, Aaron's rod that budded. You can read about that, I believe, in Numbers. It, it, it contained a pot of manna that God had preserved, uh, just as reminders of His faithfulness and His involvement with His people. But in the tabernacle, the, the Ark was understood to be the throne or the footstool of God. The, the, the ark was to be placed, uh, above the ark was placed two cherubim, you can see that in the picture, with outstretched wings and downcast eyes. God was envisioned as enthroned on the wings, and the ark was the symbol of God's very presence on earth. Is any wonder that this was a place of great mystery and great holiness? In fact, the only, only time that you could come into this room is, number one, you had to be the high priest, and you could only come in on the Day of Atonement. Once a year, this, this place was visited by one person. It, it gives you an idea of the sacredness of this, of this place. Separating the, the Holy of Holies from the next room is the curtain. This, this curtain is no ordinary curtain. You can read about it in Exodus 26, 31 through 33. And again, later on, it gives more detail this, this was not just something that we, we have hung in front of our front windows in our house to just give us a little privacy or a little decoration. This was a massive tapestry, thick and weighty, gigantic, not something that could just be pushed aside easily by one person. We're going to come back to that because the curtain represents that, that God is separate from sinners. That because of his holiness, we can't just, we can't just walk in to God's presence any, any, any time we wanted. If we were in God's, among God's people in those days, you and I, we, we, we don't get to go in. 
We don't get to go past the curtain. The curtain reminds us that we are sinners, undeserving of being in the presence of God, unable because of our sin to be so close to holiness. Thirdly, we see the altar of incense. In Exodus chapter 30, verse 8, it says, When Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he must burn incense. There is to be an incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. This was supposed to be an ongoing uh, uh, burning incense rising up. And the incense pictures prayer. The incense was to remind us that despite the fact that our sins separated us from God, that we can't come into his presence, that God hears the prayers of sinners. That even though life's not all figured out, you're still on the outside of the curtain, our prayers still go up as an offering before the Lord. It's just a reminder that, that, that God, from the very beginning of his relationship with his people, has always valued prayer. And that picture of, of that incense going up to God is a reminder that, that God hears his people. God hears our cries. God hears our groans. The table of showbread in chapter 25, verses 23 through 29, reminds us that God fellowships with sinners. That, that God longs to come to the table and, and, and be with his people. The image to me, anyways, I, th I think it's obvious that, that what we're about to celebrate here later on is a picture of what those, those Israelites longed for. You see, the table of showbread is not in the Holy of Holies. It's separate. It's outside. When Jesus came to the earth and he sat down that last night with his disciples at the table, he was letting them know that the, the table is no longer separate from the presence of God. The longing to eat with his people, the longing to share a meal with his people has been fulfilled. The lampstand. The lampstand is mentioned in chapter 25, verse 31. The lampstand was to, to burn and to, to cast light there in the tabernacle. But it was more than a source of light. It was a picture uh, of the light that God was to give sinners, that God's light was going forth in a world of darkness, in, in, in a world that had abandoned him, a world that had turned its back on him, God's light was going forth. We see next the laver that was in the outer court, a place where the priests came and cleansed their hands. You can read about this in chapter 30, verses 17 through 21. Before they went in, before they could offer sacrifices, before they could do any work in the temple they, or the tabernacle, they had to go and cleanse their hands. Now, we know that they weren't using antibacterial soap, and it wasn't necessarily killing germs, but it was representative of what needed to take place in their hearts. It was a reminder that we have a God who longs to cleanse and renew and sanctify sinners. Our God is not interested in leaving us where we are. He longs to wash us and make us new. And then finally, we have the altar, mentioned in chapter 27, verses 1 and 2. The altar was where the daily sacrifices were made. The, 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 the animals shed their blood as, as a payment for sin, as an atonement, as a substitute for sin. The altar reminded us that our God is a God who saves sinners. 
Our God is a God who makes a way for sinners to come to him. You see, at the end of the day, the tabernacle and all of its detail and decor, it was a place of grace. Remember we said it in, in Mount Sinai, all these people had just agreed to obey God. They had agreed to all these commandments. All that you have said we will do. God knows that they're sinners. God knows they're going to fall flat on their face. God knows they're not going to measure up. And in his grace, he provided a means so that their sins could be atoned. One writer says, in this gap, Stepped the Lord with his gracious provision of the tabernacle, which with its rounded system of sacrifices and its constantly burning fire, consuming, consuming the burnt offering, he spoke day and night of atonement, forgiveness, and the cleansing that's available to cater for every lapse from life of obedience to which the people had bound themselves. Our God makes a way for sinners. And that leads us to the implication of the tabernacle, some of which we've already mentioned, some of which we've already uh, said directly, others we've already alluded to, but just to spell out a couple of things. And I didn't write these, these down on the screen, but first of all, the tabernacle reminds us that we come to God in the specific way that he prescribes. We don't get to dictate how this worship works. God says, this is how, this is how you approach me. Brother Jim read... John, John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That verse offended then, and it offends still. The claim to be the only way to God? Jesus said that no one comes to the Father but through me. That idea began with a tabernacle. began before that, but was pictured beautifully in the tabernacle. There is one way. One way. You can't set up your own tabernacle, your own version of worship. You come to me through the way that I prescribe, says God. The second thing that the tabernacle reminds us of is that we need the presence of God. We absolutely need the presence of God. We were created to be in the presence of God. We forget about Eden. We forget what Genesis says about what Adam and Eve enjoyed in Eden. God breathed his very breath of life into Adam and Eve. And he said, listen, I, I am here. I want you to be in my presence. That was God's idea, not theirs. And all the way throughout Scripture, all the way throughout, this is not a here and there idea that pops up. All the way throughout Scripture is the idea of God saying, I want to be with you. I want you to be with me. There is not any of us who longs to be in the presence of God more than God longs to be with us. If that sounds blasphemous to you, just think about what he did to make a way so that you could be with him. He let his own son, he sent his own son. He didn't just let him, he sent his own son to the cross. In his immense love, he says, I want you to be with me this bad. More than any of us want to be with him. The tabernacle also reminds us that we can't approach God without a sacrifice of substitute. You couldn't just meander into the tabernacle any old way you want, as we already mentioned. The, the, the substitute, the sacrifices, could only be made by the priests. 
And, and that made the way as an atonement for the people's sin. We can't approach God without a sacrifice. But here's the rub. We needed the presence of God, but we as sinners cannot simply come into his presence, and, and we can't fix the problem. Only God could do that. He says, only those who are holy can come into my presence. By the way, none of you are holy, so I'm going to make a way so that you may come before me, that you may be cleansed. At the end of the day, though, as we come to the person and work of Christ, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the ultimate tabernacle, the one true tabernacle of God. In John chapter 1, and, and you're welcome to turn there if you'd like, there is an incredible, incredibly important connection made between what we've been saying about the tabernacle and the coming of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, he says this in verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory, the glory of the one and only true Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Some of your Bible translations might have a little note or an asterisk by the word dwelt. The Word became flesh and dwelt or made His dwelling among us. To the original readers of the Greek, they would have understood immediately what was being said because the same word that's used for dwelling is the same word that was used in the Greek version of the Old Testament to refer to the tabernacle. That's why some translators will literally render this, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The picture here is that no longer are we looking for a, a physical structure. No longer do we need to go to this one place where we can encounter God. Jesus becomes the tabernacle of God. Later, he would refer to himself as the temple of God. He says, destroy this temple. In three days, I will raise it up. And the people went nuts and are like, you're going to tear down the temple and then rebuild it in three days? What are you talking about? And Jesus is referring to his body himself, the true temple of God, the true place where we come to God. This is not to reject the Old Testament versions of the tabernacle or temple as merely ritualistic and now thankfully done away with. It's rather to understand that, that the Old Testament reality pointed beyond themselves and reached their climax in Christ, the one true place, the place that was a person where we can find our sins atoned for and where we can meet God. Jesus said, that he was the way. Finally, the tabernacle points to the future. 
The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 9.11 speaks of greater, greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. The heavenly tabernacle becomes a vehicle for describing the indescribable, for depicting the presence of God. You see, when Jesus comes back, another chapter will be written. We have, we have the past, the, the, the tabernacle that the Israelites built in the wilderness that we read about in Exodus. We have the presence where Jesus is the fulfillment of that tabernacle, and through him we can come into the presence of God. But one day in the future... In the new Jerusalem, there'll be no temple for this city. Revelation 21, 22 says, The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. What a beautiful picture. Let me close with this as we prepare to go to the Lord's table together. My brothers and sisters, it's through Jesus that we come into the very presence of God. Read the book of Hebrews and you see that, that, that we no longer need a, a physical human priest. Jesus is our high priest. We no longer need a physical building, as beautiful as this building is and all the wonderful work. You don't have to come here Sunday mornings at 8.30 or 11 to be able to experience the presence of God. If we had time this morning, we could look at 1 Corinthians 6, and he says, your body is the temple of God. There's, this whole metaphor and this picture just keeps going and expanding throughout Scripture. Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25 remind us this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. God calls his believers to gather together to experience this reality of being able to come prayerfully before the, the, the throne room of God. And on the cross, as Jesus bore our sins, he tore that curtain, that massive, heavy curtain, was rent in two, symbolizing that we can come together in the presence of God. Yes, you and I can do that on our own as we spend time with Him. But as Hebrews reminds us, it's so important that we gather together to experience this coming to God together so that we can encourage one another, build one another up, edify and strengthen each other. My brothers and sisters, nothing's changed. We still need the presence of God and as we get the opportunity to celebrate the Lord's table, I do believe that there is a, a, a special reality that we experience. I can't put it into words, but I, I believe that we get to experience this, this unique fellowship with God as we come to the table together. I want us to just take a moment and, and bow our heads. And, and, and as, as you do so, just, um, I just want to mention that um, if you've never been here before, we want to invite you to join us. This is, we believe, 
something for believers. You don't have to be a member here or check the attendance box a certain number of Sundays. We, we want you to come and experience this worship together with God's people if, if you're a child of God, if you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior and you've experienced that, that freedom from sin and forgiveness. And, and I also want to just invite you to just take a few moments and, and bow in prayer and, and just um, talk to God about what He's doing in your heart and life. Thank Him. Offer up worship as you, as you experience this time of worship with God's people. Um, we have, we have at each of the table, there's some, um, some, or I believe it's that table, there's some gluten-free bread if you need it. And then there's also an offering plate if you feel led to give to our offering that it's our, we call it our benevolence offering to, to help those in our church family who, who are in need. Um, let's just take a, a moment to pray and then I'll pray for us. And you're welcome to just come up out of your seat and come and, and, and partake of the bread and the juice, the body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Father, we come and we thank you for this picture of the tabernacle. We thank you, God, that you made a way for your people to approach you, to be right with you. But we know that the, the, the tabernacle and later the temple, they were, they were never meant to be a, a permanent fixture, permanent reality. They pointed forward to something greater, Jesus himself. We thank you, God, that we don't have to go through a human priest before we come to you. We thank you, God, that we don't have to slaughter animals to atone for our sins. That our Savior has gone to the cross and he shed his blood as an atonement for our sins. And we thank you for the redemption that is through Jesus by faith. God, I pray that if there's anybody here who has not trusted Jesus in a way that they believe him as their substitute, they believe him and receive him as, as the one who, who longs for them to dwell in his presence, who longs to come and make his dwelling in them through his Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that today would be that day that Jesus would be embraced in all his fullness. God, we thank you for the bread that points us to the body of Christ. We thank you for the cup that points us to the blood that was shed. Lord, I pray that the, the fullness, the beauty, the glory of the work of Jesus would come to us in a fresh way as we partake together. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please come. Mercy reigns and never dies. 
the cross. At the cross, at the cross, I surrender my life. I'm in awe of you. I'm in awe of you. Where your love ran red and my sin was Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in all your troubles and darkness, remember what you are and have. You have been loved with an everlasting love. You are supported by everlasting arms. You are recipients of everlasting life and heirs of an everlasting kingdom, all sealed and made sure by the blood of an everlasting covenant. Amen. Bless you all. We love you. At the cross, at the cross, I surrender my life. I mean, Lord.